Well, if you will, open up your Bible and turn to Genesis chapter 17. Genesis chapter 17, we'll read it. We'll look at several other verses and scripture references. We'll eventually make our way back to it and, and open it up a little more specifically. But I do think this is a good place to start. Genesis chapter 17, and I will read verses 1 and 2. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. This is the Word of God. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you again for your Word, and we are appreciative of the opportunity to gather again. I pray that you would Use this time, Holy Spirit, to affect our hearts and our minds as we consider the reality of the God who is, as we labor diligently, hopefully, to put aside every false notion, every idol, put those out of our minds so that we might set our affections on the one true and living God who is God Almighty. And we thank you and we praise you. And it's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Why don't you pray? Why don't you pray more? When you do pray, why don't you pray longer than you pray? Why are there some things that you pray for and other things you don't pray for? Why does it take you so long in some scenarios to utilize the gift of prayer? When you're sick, why don't you pray before you take medicine rather than after? Wait a few days and then say, well, all we can do now is pray. When you look at the current political state of our nation, why don't you pray? When you think of that person that you know who seems absolutely unreachable, if you could point to someone and say, I could never imagine that person coming to the Lord, why don't you pray for them? When you see a string of difficult circumstances that are coming your way, perhaps you can see them on the horizon, why do you not pray? Or when you get no response from God after a few mentions of a specific request, why do you give up praying? Why do you not continue? Why are you not still praying for the requests that you prayed for ten years ago that were never answered, as far as you could tell? Why don't you pray? I believe that there's one answer that would suffice to answer all of those questions 
if we're honest, and that is this. Deep down, we don't really believe that God has the ability to effect change. We confess it, as we'll see, and we say it, but we don't really believe it. In your heart, you believe that there are some situations where God's hands are tied. And so you don't pray. What's the use in praying to a God who can't work, who can't move? Well, in the first chapter of our confession, we've come to this particular attribute of God, and it's stated in one word, Almighty. That's the confessional language, that God is Almighty. Theologically speaking, if you're reading on the subject or if you're studying the attributes of God, this attribute will be described or, or labeled, called, entitled, the omnipotence of God. Now to define that word, omni means all. And if something is potent, it has power to influence or to impress. We might say snake venom is Potent. A particular smell is potent. It has power to influence or to impress. And so the word omnipotent or omnipotence literally means all power or all powerful, having all power. And so to define, and this would be my personal definition of the omnipotence of God, when we say that God is omnipotent, or we're describing the omnipotence of God, we are discussing that in God which causes all things which are to be. The omnipotence of God is that in God which causes all things which are, comma, to be. I think that's an appropriate comma. Now, as is often the case, what I want to do to describe or open up this attribute is sort of exegete my definition. I, I came up with this, and so I want to sort of justify my use of that definition, that in God which causes all things which are to be. First, when we're describing or discussing the omnip omnipotence of God, we're talking about something in God, that in God. It is an attribute of God. Now, we saw that God is... Spirit, and that God is simple. God is without parts. And so God's omnipotence is not something that He merely possesses, but something that He is, like all of His attributes. We're talking about what God is. If you or I have power, speaking about physical power, that means that I have strength in my muscles that I can utilize to accomplish Something I can use the strength stored in my muscles to pick up an object or push an object to have influence over it or affect it. But with God, it's not so because His power is who He is. He does not use separate parts of Himself to carry out an act. He is act. He exerts not stored energy or strength, He exerts Himself upon an object. To put it another way, God does possess 
all power and all might in Himself. The Word of God says in 1 Chronicles chapter 29 and verse 12, In your hand are power and might. And those words are usually synonymous to refer to God's strength, God's power. In Revelation 19 and verse 1, again, the Word of God says, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to God or belong to our God. And in Psalm 62 and verse 11, once God has spoken, twice have I heard this, that power belongs to God. God has and is the source of all power in and of Himself. It is who He is. He is all-powerful. In Romans chapter 1 and verse 20, Paul makes this statement that God's invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived. God's power is eternal like Him. If it is eternal, it must be synonymous with Him. It is who He is. He is power. He is all power. So this is that in God which causes. And here's where we run into this idea of potency. That is power to influence something. But in the very wording of that definition, power to influence, there, there's a distinction between the power and the influence. You see how that works. Potency is the power to influence. But with God, it is not that He has the power to influence, but that He does actually always influence or cause. That in God which causes, not that in God which could cause, or that in God which has the ability to cause, or that in God which may cause. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that in God which causes. See, we hear the word potent and our minds might begin to think of potential, stored energy. But there is no potential in God. He is pure act pure causation. This is that in God which causes all things. Now this is referring to the infinitude or the, the limitless causation with which God acts. God causes all things. There's nothing that happens, no event or happening on this planet, in this universe, in the material world or in the spiritual world that does not receive its ability to be in some form from God. Now that does not mean that He causes all things in the same way or to the same degree. But it does mean that without God, no thing could take place. No event could be. God's power is limitless in its effect and in its location. There is nothing that limits God's ability to do, and there is no place, no location where God cannot do. As we just heard, Ephesians 1.11, God works all things according to the counsel of His will. All things. 
So the omnipotence of God is that in God, an attribute of God's essential being, which causes, not has the ability to cause, but which actually causes all things, and here's the next part, which are. And I hope you see how I'm trying to be very specific in, in the language here. Which are, that is, in actuality. And the reason I think this is important is because theologians like to argue and, 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 and sort of pontificate about, about things like whether or not God could change the past. Whether or not God could create another God. Whether or not God could create a rock so big that even He can't move it. These are vain discussions. They're useless questions. There's also the question, the question of ability. Can God do absolutely anything? When we say that God is omnipotent, that He has all power, are we saying that there is nothing God cannot do? Well, the children's catechism has this question. Can God do all things? Yes, God can do all His holy will. You see, God's ability is confined by His holy will, which is always true to Himself. And so if we, if we want to take the omnipotence of God to the extreme to say that God can do absolutely all things, then we would have to say that God can lie. God can change. God can repent. God can change the past. Things like this. But we know from Scripture God cannot lie. God cannot repent. God cannot change. God cannot be tempted with evil. God cannot deny Himself in any way. But, here's where we come back to the definition, all things which are, that is in actuality, not speculation, these are all the product of God's causation. There's no such thing as potential in God. The idea of middle knowledge. God knows all of the potential worlds that could have been. They couldn't have been. If they could have been, God would have caused them. But nothing, there's, there's no potential. God is that which causes all things which are. Psalm 115.3 says, Our God is in the heavens. He does all that He pleases. Psalm 135.6, again, the Word of God says, Whatever the Lord pleases, He does. In heaven and on earth, in the seas and all deeps. Daniel 4.35, again, He does according to His will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay His hand. Notice the, the phrasing here. All that He pleases, whatever the Lord pleases, according to His will. That's the limit to God's power. He, his power is limited by His godness, His godhood, His good pleasure. All that He wills and purposes to happen, happens because He is omnipotent. He is all-powerful. We might put it this way, there is no maybe in God. So the omnipotence of God is that in God which causes all things which are to be. Again, not potential, but actual. It's not that in God which causes all things which are to be possible. If they are, they, they are. Not all things which are 
to maybe happen or to exist in the minds of men just because we might be, think that we can imagine some non-reality. That doesn't mean it's real. God causes things to be, not to merely be potential or possible. If an event has happening, if any occurrence exists in the realm of reality, it is because of God's unlimited effectual potency. So the omnipotence of God is that in God which causes all things which are to be. Now because this is true of God... He must of necessity be the source of all power and all might that, could, that, that belong to any other created thing. For example, when it comes to the people of God, the Word of God says in Psalm 68:35, Awesome is God from His sanctuary, the God of Israel. He is the one who gives power and strength to His people. Blessed be God. Or again, 1 Chronicles 29, 12, In your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. So when it comes to His people, He's the one who gives us power. We think about political power. Again, from Daniel chapter 4, the Word of God says, The Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom He will and sets over it the lowliest of men. Any political power, this is what Paul alludes to in Romans 13. Any, any political power, any, any emperor has his power as a servant of God because God has placed him there. Any authority he has is derived authority. He hands it over. When it comes to things like the created lights in the heavens... Psalm 136, verses 7 through 9 says, "...to him who made the great lights..." For His steadfast love endures forever. The sun to rule over the day. For His steadfast love endures forever. The moon and the stars to rule over the night. For His steadfast love endures forever. There was nothing but darkness. And God said, let there be light. And then He created the heavenly beings and gives to them their light. Their power. And we talked a little two weeks ago about the the, the power, the force, the, the blinding uh, heat of the sun. Even things like animals. In Job chapter 39, here's a rhetorical question. Do you give the horse his might? Do you clothe his neck with a mane? Do you make him leap like the locust? His majestic snorting is terrifying. It's a rhetorical question. What is, fur, what is being inferred is... No, you don't, because I do. I give the horse its power. I put the mane on his neck. I make him jump. We consider all of creation. Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3 says, He upholds the universe by the word of His power. This is what leads Tozer to say, what we see in nature is simply the path God's power and wisdom take through creation. Everything that happens is, is pure God's power working in creation. And because God is omnipotent and God is ase, independent, self-sufficient, 
The fact that God delegates power to created things in no way ever implies that He diminishes His power. So we don't have to imagine that God has a little power meter and as He gives some to this king and He gives some to this president, gives some to this horse and gives some to this star, that His power is, is slowly inching down. That's not the case. Again, I'll quote Tozer. He says, God has delegated power to His creatures, but being self-sufficient, He cannot relinquish anything of His perfections. And power being one of them, He has never surrendered the least iota of His power. He gives, but He does not give away. It's still all His. God is He who causes all things which are to be. Now let's come back to Genesis chapter 17. And we'll see this attribute displayed. This is the reference that the confession states. The scriptures, you, if you wanted to, you could, are replete with references to the power and the might and the strength and the ability of God. But it's here that we see it in its first explicit reference. Genesis 17, verses 1 and 2, When Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you, and may multiply you greatly. Now put yourself in Abram's shoes at this point. In Genesis chapter 12, God calls Abram from Ur of the Chaldeans at 75 years old. And He gives him these promises of land and seed and a nation. We follow. Genesis chapter 16, Abram fathers Ishmael at 86 years old. We finally come to Genesis chapter 17. Abram is 99 years old. In other words... Imagine it, 24 years have passed since God said, I will give you offspring and land and I'll make of you a great nation. 24 years since his first visitation, Abraham hasn't gotten any younger. His wife's not getting any younger and nothing's happened. Now at that point, what could be the most reassuring thing that Abram could ever hear? I think it's this, I am God Almighty. God here is not simply telling Abram about himself. He does not say, I am the Almighty God or an Almighty God. He says, I am God Almighty. I am El Shaddai. He's telling Abram his name. This is me. I am El Shaddai. In Exodus chapter 6, Later, we read these words. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. In other words, prior to revealing His name, Yahweh, to Moses, I am who I am, God had been primarily known as El Shaddai. God Almighty. And so when we come to Genesis chapter 17 or all the way back in chapter 16 or back in chapter 12, God is promising the seemingly impossible to the naturally unable in order to accomplish the inconceivable. 
over and over and over again, and 24 years have passed and nothing has happened, and yet the strongest nourishment that God could give for the faith of the patriarchs was that there's nothing in my purpose that I can't accomplish. God is He who causes all things which are to be. And He will continue to do just that. Abraham and Sarah, I might have thought, we're getting old. God says, what's old? What is that to me? Isaac said to Jacob in Genesis 28.3, God Almighty bless you. God speaking to Jacob in Genesis 35, I am God Almighty, be fruitful and multiply. In Genesis 43, 14, Jacob, there speaking to his son, says, May God Almighty grant you mercy before the man. And so for the patriarchs, upon whose faith this nation would be established, they knew God as El Shaddai, God Almighty. And it was enough for them. God, the All-Powerful. And so I think we can already see just how useful and encouraging that particular attribute of God is. I'll give you several applications or uses of this, this attribute of God. The first thing I think we, that, that should happen to us when we begin to consider that God is all-powerful is this. Humble yourself. Humble yourself. Whatever little power... We have to accomplish anything we derive from God. It comes from Him. We tend to walk and talk as if we were, were so powerful. We, we walk with such arrogance. We strut our supposed abilities or capabilities. And we don't have any power that is ours. We become lazy in prayer. And one reason that we're lazy in prayer is because deep down we think we have as much power to accomplish apart from God what God can accomplish Himself. Why pray to the God who can do just as much as I can? And so we need to humble ourselves. When we begin to believe that God is God Almighty, that God is omnipotent, and we understand that the work that He has called us to is an impossible task in, of our, in and of ourselves, we will call upon Him. We'll humble ourselves. That's why Paul would say, who's sufficient for these things? Not me. And Peter writes these words, 1 Peter 5, verses 6 and 7, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. So I think that's first. Humble, humble yourself. Think about it. The second use of this attribute of God, we need to remember that there is no physical thing that God cannot do. No physical thing that God cannot do. So, are you sick? Do you know someone who's sick? I feel like an infomercial. Are you pregnant or nursing? Are you having trouble sleeping at night? God is able to heal, able to ease, able to comfort. But we don't bring these things to God. Why? We don't believe He is able. Bring these things to God. He's not constrained by, by physical limitations. 
Again, in Genesis chapter 18, the Word of God says, The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. Again, in Luke chapter 1, the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, this child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with, with her, who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. Mary says to Sarah, Sarah says, I'm so old. Mary says, I'm a virgin. These are not limitations to God. There is no physical thing God cannot do. If God can do these things, bring forth life from a barren womb, bring, bring forth life from a virgin womb, should we not feel free to come to Him with our minor infirmities and believe He's able to heal? So, there's no physical thing God cannot do. Thirdly, there is no political situation that God is unaware of and or cannot change. We think of the state of our nation. We think of the state of the nations around the world where our brothers and sisters are persecuted. We, we look out and we see the, the marginalization of biblical Christianity getting closer and closer to home. The last thing we need do is despair because our God is omnipotent. Why would we fear? The Word of God says in Proverbs 21.1, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Daniel 2, he changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. God's not setting back saying, Well, you voted for him, not me. He can change the hearts of kings. He can steer the political ship. Nothing's happening that he's not aware of and that he cannot change. Four, there is no person so vile that God cannot save. Perhaps you have a family member that you consider completely unreachable. You've tried and tried and tried, and the last thing on their mind is the truth. They are as blind as blind could be to the truth. Perhaps you have a coworker who's, who's so steeped in cultural Christianity. They've prayed the prayer so many times they've lost count. And you share the gospel with them and, and we would say they're impregnable. They've got that shot. They, 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 don't ha they don't need to hear what you have to say. Or perhaps you know somebody who's just caught up in vile secularism and paganism and you, you, you can't imagine this person being a Christian. It is of their essence to be this godless pagan. We need not lose hope for these because such were some of you. But God is omnipotent. Again, the Word of God says in Matthew chapter 3 and verse 9, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. And in chapter 19 and verse 26, with man this is impossible, but with God 
all things are possible. Both of those texts are speaking of bringing, gathering in believers into the covenant community. You think you've got a family member who's hard of hearing? Imagine a rock. God can raise up believers out of the rocks. Zephaniah chapter 3 and verse 17 says, The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. So there is no person who's so lost that God cannot save. Number five, there's no string of circumstances that God cannot and is not using for good. Very often we look ahead at events and we wonder how we'll ever make it out. How it could ever produce a positive outcome. Maybe you've got a lost friend or a lost family member and they have uttered some ignorant, foolish prayers about a loved one. And then that loved one dies. And it, it appears that the one thing that might have been able to turn their hearts to God actually looks like it's only going to turn them away. And you think in your mind, God, you could have clearly shown your power answering their prayers and they would have seen and believed now things are hopeless. You, you've, you've turned them away from yourself. Ephesians 1.11 again says, "...He works all things according to the counsel of His will." And Romans 8.28 says he, uh, he works all things together for good for those who love Him. So there's no string of circumstances that we ever have to worry. I'm not sure how this could become good. I'm not sure how this could work out to good. It always will. No matter the situation, God is working it for good. And He's not powerless to do so. And lastly, the sixth use. Strengthen yourself in the Lord your God. When you have given all that you have to give, and you've exerted all of your spiritual vitality and service to others and the Lord, and when attacks from within and attacks from without never cease to give you rest, you've spent six days with your mind entangled in all of the other things of your life with very little time for spiritual rest and, and, and just a little bit of nourishment. Do what David did. In 1 Samuel chapter 30 and verse 6, the Word of God says, But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. Now, if you read that story, his city had been burned, his family had been kidnapped, the families of his men had been taken, and they were upset with him and they wanted to kill him. And the first thing he does is strengthens himself in the Lord his God. He ran to the bottomless pool of power that he might be filled again. God is omnipotent. God is almighty. He gives His people strength. So if nothing else, I'll end the way I began. I think this attribute should propel us to consistent, persistent, faithful, expectant prayer. When I think about the omnipotence of God, I, I, I think, why would I not pray? God is almighty. God has all power. He has enough power. He has limitless power. He has effectual power. So let's pray. 
And then we'll stand and we'll sing another song together. Father, we are amazed at your power. And Lord, we know that the same power which raised Christ from the dead now dwells in us. The, the reason we so often languish is because we've not strengthened ourselves in the Lord our God. We've gone to everything else under the sun to find strength, to find some sort of emotional stimulation or mental stimulation rather than coming to the Lord our God to receive from His bottomless fountain of power. Lord, give us power. I pray that there would be evident Holy Spirit power in all of our lives as we go out this week. That as we speak with our neighbors, our co-workers, our friends, our family members, that you would go before us and that you would give us power. That uh, the, the words that we use, the gospel that we proclaim would, would come in power and would work in the hearts and lives of men and women. Lord, we thank you for the Lord's day. And we thank you for one day in seven where we can come and receive power, be strengthened, nourished, edified by you, our God. In Jesus' name we pray.